This podcast from Teacher is supported by MacKillop Seasons, whose Seasons for Life project supports schools with loss and grief following a suicide and other loss event. Thanks for downloading this podcast from Teacher. I'm Jo Earp. At the end of last month, we brought you news of the release of UNESCO's 2023 Global Education Monitoring, that's GEM for short, report, Technology in Education, a tool on whose terms. This major international report draws on analysis of over 200 education systems, highlighting the benefits, opportunities and the challenges of technology in education. In this episode, I'm joined by GEM Report Director Manos Antoninis to discuss the six key messages delivered by the team, including what government systems and schools should be thinking about when planning to bring technology into the classroom. So, let's dive in. Hi Manos, it's a good afternoon from Melbourne actually and a good morning to you there in Paris. Thanks for joining us here at Teacher for this Global Education Podcast. So, we're going to be talking about the data, but can you start first of all by explaining to listeners what the Global Education Monitoring Report actually is and its purpose? Uh, Thank you for the invitation. The Global Education Monitoring Report um, was established in 2002, so it has a history of more than 20 years, to monitor progress on education in the international development agenda. At the time, that was called Education for All. Uh, These were targets set for 2015. And it is quite an unusual uh, publication because it is an editorially independent report of which there are not that many in this uh, field, uh, that is hosted and published by UNESCO. So there was a a kind of relationship of mutual trust that uh, UNESCO could continue playing the monitoring function that it has, but it would assign the responsibility for the publication of a quasi-annual report uh, to an editorially independent team. This experiment in 2015 uh, was kind of rewarded by this time a global mandate from the world's governments to continue monitoring progress, this time in the new development agenda, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, and in particular SDG4, the education goal, all the way to 2030. Mm -hmm. And we produce a report that uh, usually has two parts because our mandate is twin, to monitor progress on education, uh, and that means quantitative monitoring uh, of the indicators that are in the SDG4 framework but also monitor the implementation of national and international strategies to achieve SDG 4. And uh, that is with the objective of holding all partners to account for the commitments they made at the beginning of this process. And that's why every report has a theme that follows one of these set of strategies um, that are identified in the roadmap for achieving SDG 4. It's called the Framework for Action. Mm-hmm. And the theme this year, this particular edition, was technology and education. You collected data from more than 200 countries. I'm interested on the timing and the demographics of that. So first of all, when did the data collection take place and who were the participants? And then I was thinking, you know, 200 countries, that's a 
that's a massive undertaking. I mean, first of all, uh, as I mentioned, the report has two parts. And uh, the monitoring part, the more quantitative, hard quantitative part, uh, there's a process behind that that has been going on for 20 years. The main source of comparative data is the UNESCO Institute for Statistics. Uh, but we also use several additional sources of information to inform our global audiences on progress towards SDG4. But when it came to the issue of technology, apart from uh, the classic literature reviews that we do and uh, selected background papers that also contribute to the evidence base. It's been now uh, three report cycles that we also collect additional information uh, through what we call the peer website. And I will explain that in a, in a second. Essentially, we realized that even though the report usually covers about 150 to 200 pages uh, of material on uh, the theme, still there was a bias. Many countries are covered much more than others for all sorts of historic, political, economic curiosity reasons. Other countries are left out and we felt that we really needed to uh, fill that gap. So we started a process whereby on the theme of the report, we prepared from our team in a few cases with uh, external collaborators, country profiles on selected issues uh, or on laws and policies that address this particular theme. And then we uh, compile the information in selected indicators that give us a bit of a sense for that point in time, what is the global uh, status, um, how is the world moving. We can disaggregate that uh, by region and by country income group to give a general sense. We don't report yet uh, this information by country because, as you rightly said, it is a massive amount of information collection. It is always possible that countries may contest individual um, conclusions we reach for their own country. We don't want to enter into that particular challenge. We just want to give a general sense of where the world is going. And so far, this has served as well. In any case, information is available on our peer website, which is at uh, www.education-profiles.org. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I'll put a link into the podcast transcript, which is on the teacher website for those who want to have a look there. Uh, I'll also put a link into the full report, the full GEM 2023 report. That's got a wealth of information. There's there's lots of examples from around the world. There's also a summary version, although um, that one's still 34 pages. So it really does have some great insights in there. So I'd recommend that as well. Before we dive in, then I want to read this overview from the report. It says, um, the adoption of digital technology has resulted in many changes in education and learning, yet it is debatable whether technology has transformed education as many claim. The application of digital technology varies by community and socioeconomic level, by teacher willingness and preparedness, by education level and by country income. Except in the most technologically advanced countries, computers and devices are not used in classrooms on a large scale. Moreover, evidence is mixed on its impact. The short and long term costs of using digital technology appear to be significantly underestimated. The most disadvantaged are typically denied the opportunity to benefit. So I just wanted to read that to give, give listeners a bit of a, a context to that. In that summary report, 
uh, that I mentioned, you've identified six key messages. And uh, the first one is good impartial evidence on the impact of education technology is in short supply. What, what have you found on this point? OK, first of all, it's good that you remind the audience that this is a global report. We, we cover countries uh, from those that your know, audience may find it hard to believe have uh, no schools with electricity uh, to, of course, countries that already are applying, maybe on an experimental, but maybe on a wider basis, facial recognition technology in, in classrooms. So we have all the extremes and it's, of course, uh, quite difficult uh, for us to strike the right balance and convey messages that can apply to all uh, these countries. Um, in terms of the evidence, it's true that our report generally tends to deal with uh, themes that are relatively established. We, we know we have a, a good evidence base and a clear sense of uh, how they contribute to the achievement of the global education goal. Technology is not one of those. Technology is evolving rapidly and um, every uh, product is estimated to have uh, a life cycle of about three years. Then there's a new cycle. Um, and of course, there are multiple technologies with very limited time, therefore, to evaluate. And with concerns that the main providers of evidence are the providers of technology itself. And that uh, generates some concerns as to the impartiality of the evidence. I think the one thing that is particularly striking is that we found hardly any evidence that governments have units that evaluate the usefulness and effectiveness of technology. Perhaps the one of the rare examples of not exactly, a, one would say, an evaluation unit, but at least a repository, uh, is that of the clearinghouse of the United States, of the federal government. And um, an investigative report evaluated that there were about more than 10,000 uh, products and applications listed, of which only 2% had some evidence that they were moderately effective. That in itself, I think, should serve as a signal. Of course, it's very clear that it's impossible for every government to have such um, a unit because the costs of setting it up is are high. But one would expect a bit more collective action on, on the side of the, the largest uh, users of the technology, which is governments around the world, um, some common actions and some more lesson sharing and some more process, uh, not just leaving it to um, academic research, which inevitably sometimes may be focusing on relatively narrower issues. And I think that's one of the uh, problems we encountered. Often the questions of research are, let's say, formulated in a rather narrow way. Uh, you know, a very specific product, a very specific uh, target group, a very specific learning outcome. And yes, we do find evidence that in such tightly controlled environments, yes, there is some moderately positively positive impact. But the repercussions of technology are much broader, and uh, we could not find um, good evidence that really looks at all uh, these repercussions at a broader scale. Because as we know, um, technology today is ubiquitous and it's difficult to identify precisely what is the uh, contribution that technology is making.
Mm -hmm. And as you say, it changes so quickly. And by the time you've you've done that evaluation, but like you say, again, you'd at least hope that there was some thought going into or questioning of what what is the impact of this? What is the evidence behind this? Um, I want to talk about access and equity. That's a, a big theme running throughout the report, obviously. And that's the second key message that, that technology offers an education lifeline for millions, but excludes many more. Um, and, and this is something, again, throughout the report, there's kind of that tendency to, to look at just the challenges. But there are some positives here, but there are also the negatives, aren't there? Well, uh, again, it depends how we define technology. Um, there is a tendency, um, and in fact, I could make a small diversion. The report inevitably focuses on the impact of digital technology on education. But the theme of technology is much broader, uh, and the report uh, also covers the impact of other technologies. Uh, for instance, not ICTs, but construction, energy, transport, these also have um, impact. It also covers, only in one chapter, uh, even though it is as important, if not more important than the uh, question of the impact of technology on education, the impact of education on technology. And uh, that is perhaps the one issue that is the elephant in the room, because without education, you cannot achieve technological development. But leaving that uh, aside um, and returning to the question of um, access to technology, there's no question that technology has offered uh, multiple um, uh, advantages to student populations. Australia is, of course, one of the examples of countries that have applied distant education technology for its remote populations for decades with uh, success with many lessons learned and shared all over the world. Uh, other countries have also benefited and continue to benefit from for their remote populations through uh, low tech uh, approaches based on radio, for instance, or television. Um, there is, of course, the very particular group of learners with disabilities for whom uh, technology is more than just a lifeline. Uh, it, completely changes their interface with learning opportunities. Um, and we know that people who are starved for time and other resources also can continue being adult learners through the help of uh, technology. And there are several examples of that kind. And of course, the, the peak was the opportunity that technology afforded us all during COVID-19. Mm -hmm. However, COVID-19 is also to some extent the unraveling of what technology is offering to some and not to others. Um, we know for sure that at least one third of people on the planet did not have any opportunity for any type of distant education technology, but even among those who did, there were wide disparities uh, in terms of the um, quality of the connection that they had, uh, in terms of the support and resources they could have at home, um, the availability of devices that could uh, facilitate the learning. And these are issues that continue uh, existing because always the technology is advancing, the requirements become uh, higher and higher, and there are always people who are left behind. So I think there's a, a wide consensus that the digital divide is a major concern. Of course, we know also that um, education and technology uh, need not be limited to distance education. The question is, what is happening in the classroom. And there, there are other issues. Here, technology in principle offers a promise for some types of learning. I think it's important to stress always some types of learning um, for those who maybe 
lacking sufficient support at home and maybe getting extra support by teachers in the classroom. But there's not that much evidence to prove the point that this is indeed uh, happening. And I think that's another point that the report is making. Mm -hmm. And just that, as you mentioned earlier, the divide, the huge divide uh, between some countries and schools who are using adaptive technology and high bandwidths and so on. And then you've got huge chunks of countries that do not even have access to electricity, let alone devices. Um, the, the third key message that you make in that summer report is, and, and you've touched on this, some education technology can improve some types of learning in some contexts. So what does the evidence say here? Uh, yes, I think it's, it is an important message. There is a, a tendency, again, mainly by technology providers, to present technology as a blanket positive solution to all problems of education. And yet, technology, in, generally speaking, has not been developed for education purposes. What we often see is people who are quite optimistic about the potential, uh, and that's why this report struggled, because we're not really uh, used to talking about the potential of things. We try to look at proof and evidence that things are working in particular ways. So uh, that has time and again proven to be uh, false uh, promises of transformation. You mentioned at the beginning the the issue of uh, the, the fact that education has not yet been transformed. We used the evidence from the one of the main comparative um, learning uh, achievement surveys, the um, 2019 teams, which is focusing on science and mathematics in mainly upper, middle and high income countries. And then we found that only 10% of learners had at least one hour of uh, exposure to the use of computers in the science and mathematics classes in uh, grade eight. Australia was, of course, one of the exceptions because it was one of the top three countries uh, that were using technology in uh, classrooms alongside a couple of Scandinavian countries. But overall, we see that technology has not yet um, been integrated uh, in a systematic way around the world. And probably that is a matter of cost, the investment uh, that it, it takes to make that happen. Probably it's a matter of uh, training the teachers. It's probably a realization. I think that's the most important thing of the huge steps that would need to be made uh, in pedagogy, because that has been the classic uh, problem of most technology interventions. There has been an emphasis on digital inputs, and yet very limited thinking behind how do these inputs work in practice? How do they need to change the way uh, the classroom is organized and managed, uh, the assignments are given, uh, and so on? And I think that's where the education systems struggle, because they have not made that investment yet, uh, that necessary supplementary investment. And it looks as if often uh, people are moving a bit in the dark, and uh, that's why we don't even have the research that would be needed to support any investment in that direction that would be systematic, organized. Again, the examples of countries that have done that systematically are very limited. And we found, to our surprise, that even some of the most advanced in that respect have really only done patchwork of individual interventions 
uh, that work in particular subjects or in particular grades or in particular, there has been no systematic attempt to digitalize education in general. And that's because uh, I would presume that governments are not yet convinced. They, they like to think of the need to uh, transform um, their societies uh, in a digital direction, but they haven't yet thought through the implications of that for education. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the report uh, about, for example, you know, this idea of some countries just bringing in the tech, thinking about the tech, not thinking about the teachers, not thinking about the students, not particularly thinking about what the outcomes are going to be. And uh, the, the one of the cases you mentioned is of, uh, I think it's Peru, isn't it, where they brought in a one-to-one uh, laptop program, but they didn't essentially train the teachers in it, and so obviously that had no um, not much in impact on student outcomes. So, um, like I say, it's in it's interesting what's happening around the world. Interesting that you haven't found anybody doing that really effectively and consistently. Um, okay, the next area then I want to talk about is the pace of change. We've touched on this as well about how quickly um, products evolve. The difficulty I think for students and teachers as well, and then of course systems. Um, in trying to keep up with and adapt to how quickly technology is developing. What what are their findings around that key message? I think there's a, an important divide that the report tries to bring up. The report is not uh, skeptical about the usefulness and importance of technology. Every learner should be um, exposed to technology, uh, should learn about technology. There's a chapter on digital skills and the report makes uh, an appeal for all governments to think through carefully what it means to be uh, digitally literate and, and have the right competencies to navigate the digital world. We find, for instance, a risk there because there is a tendency, again, often led by commercial providers, to narrow down uh, digital skills to individual specific competencies that are related to the world of work, but quite narrowly defined, um, often leading to some certification that uh, is also offered at a price. Um, we stress the importance of the approach that uh, European countries have taken in defining uh, digital competencies for citizenship and thinking more broadly about what one needs to have uh, to be able to to do that, and um, it's also uh, important in the sense that if you dig deeply, what you find is that ultimately learners who have better reading and mathematics skills are far less likely to be, for instance, duped by phishing emails or misinformation on the web. Uh, so it's interesting that if you dig down. Uh, you ultimately find that to be a digital citizen, ultimately you need to be well educated. You need to have the foundations that ultimately lead you to develop uh, the competencies and skills that help you navigate the digital world. So an overemphasis on technical skills is potentially misleading uh, and uh, diverts us away from the real purpose of education. But I mentioned that the report is, of course, in favour of a, a good discussion um, on how to uh, teach students about technology. Uh, it's linked a little bit to that other relationship I mentioned, how education can affect technology rather than how technology affects education. 
but teaching students about technology, and we also know that students tend to know more about it than uh, teachers or their parents, for sure, um, is different to insisting that teaching needs to be done through technology. And uh, that is a clear distinction that is, of course, uh, somehow difficult to convince policymakers about. Uh, and technology providers like to see the two as one. But that would be a mistake because there are many ways to teach about technology. And we, as I mentioned before, we have a relatively limited proof because of the constant changing of uh, products that are being offered as solutions, uh, whereas we know for sure that no product offers a solution. The solution is pedagogy. The solution is how you teach, how you integrate different types of resources and how you facilitate the flow, critical flow of information and uh, exchange between teachers uh, on their experiences, building confidence, um, being clear about things that do not work, um, having a say in decisions being taken, not being offered packages of such solutions that are externally imposed and not sufficiently consulted. So the report is basically um, trying to make four recommendations in that respect, asking policymakers before they apply technology, and we don't go into the specifics of any individual technology because it would be unfair given the amount of technologies that exist, to ask these four questions. Is the technology appropriate? That means, is it context specific and is it leading to improved learning? Is it equitable, as we just discussed before? Is it scalable? Uh, because many of the uh, examples, as I was saying, are very narrowly construed. And when you really need to scale them up, you need to be fully aware of the total cost uh, and the evidence behind that. And fourth, is it sustainable? And that is not just economically sustainable, but also uh, socially sustainable. Um, we know of all the difficult um, side effects uh, that threaten well-being, um, safety and privacy, for instance, but also environmentally sustainable, because if everyone in the world jumps on technology today, if that's what we're aspiring for, the implications in terms of energy and materials are quite vast. And I don't think anyone has stopped for a moment to think what it is that we're asking for. We'll be back with more from my chat with Manos Antoninis after this quick message from our sponsor. You're listening to a podcast from Teacher Magazine, supported by MacKillop Seasons, whose Seasons for Life project supports young people affected by suicide and other loss events throughout Australia. Free for Australian high schools and based on the strong evidence base of the Seasons for Growth, Change, Loss and Grief education programmes, the Seasons for Life project builds well-being, resilience, social and emotional coping skills and strengthens supportive relationships. The, the next key message is certainly something that, that's featuring heavily in discussions around AI at the moment, and I find this area fascinating. And it plays into that, um, that point that you were making about uh, digital literacy, information literacy. Um, where is the content coming from? Who's regulating that? Your message is online content has grown without enough regulation of quality control or diversity. Um, 
Can you give some examples of what this might look like for K-12 education? I think that this message was perhaps more related to um, the non-English speaking world, which is was a majority, but the um, the types of resources that are available globally these days are dominated um, by English language uh, providers. And that in itself, or you know, maybe some of them are translated, but a translation of a resource does not make it necessarily uh, context relevant. And I think it is uh, an alarm uh, bell that we ring. Um, we, we launched, by the way, the report in Uruguay. Uruguay has been considered as one of the countries that have championed uh, the use of technology. It originally fell into the same category as uh, Peru. It invested in uh, one laptop per child. It realized very soon that it failed, even though huge political stakes had been placed there. Um, but rather than abandon the effort, they then try to see, okay, what can we do to correct, improve the situation? Um, it's not that uh, education has been digitalized, uh, but they have introduced selectively platforms that try to um, be a bit more context specific. And I think they have been trying to reverse engineer a little bit. And they call that uh, digital sovereignty. And it's a, it's an interesting term because um, these days we like to think of more multilateral solutions and not think of uh, country-specific interests or isolationism. But I think digital sovereignty in their uh, definition is more interesting because essentially it tries to ask, okay, all these externally available resources, what can they do for our learners? How relevant are they? And I think very few countries have gone down that route. Yes, there's a wealth of information uh, at the you know, tip of our fingers uh, for all learners, regardless of the language we speak. And of course, English is becoming ever more spread and understood by millions and billions. But still, for the vast majority of learners, English language resources are not relevant. And there needs to be a process uh, whereby countries study what is available and don't just have repositories where you can find them, but start curating, thinking through what is really relevant, what needs to be produced in country, um, how this is going to improve learning, etc. Mm -hmm. This is a very, very long process, and I think very few countries have embarked on that path. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating, isn't it? And it has impacts as well on uh, research and evaluation and, yeah, the, the publishing language of that and the accessibility and the opportunities for people to do research other than in English. Um, the final key message then in the summary report, as I mentioned, there are six, is uh, technology is often bought to plug a gap. I think there'll be a lot of people uh, nodding their heads there, a lot of teachers and leaders out there nodding their heads, with no view to long-term costs. And this is not just a financial cost, it also includes cost to children's well-being. Um, and that's the message actually that, that's really grabbed the headlines from this report, isn't it? The recommendation that all schools should ban smartphones. Can you comment a little bit on the long-term financial cost aspect? You've kind of touched on that earlier. And then also on the smartphones, what what you think about that? I mean, the, the report has a history of um, being interested and primarily concerned with the world's poorest countries. Um, and our cost implications relate to them because still in the international development uh, agenda and among financiers, 
there's still a desire to invest in technology. And uh, we basically remind uh, these stakeholders that we have estimated that for countries to achieve the national SDG4 targets, this is a, a process that the GEM report uh, has been working on with the UNESCO Institute for Statistics to encourage countries to set national targets for selected SDG4 indicators. That's a very, very important process uh, that other sectors don't have. Um, targets for 2025 and 2030. And we have estimated that these uh, 80 low and lower middle income countries face a financing gap of almost 100 billion per year between now and 2030 to achieve their national targets. Investment in technology, uh, depending on the scenario, in a uh, scenario that is very, very uh, meek, uh, offline solutions for low income countries and school connectivity for lower middle income countries would add essentially another 50% to that cost. Um, and we have so far found no evidence that any of that cost could substitute any of the resources that are currently missing. Um, maybe potentially some savings, small savings in textbooks could be made if we had resources online, but given the difficulty of people being online and therefore the continuing importance of printed textbooks for these learners, even that potential saving is not likely to come anytime soon. So we do uh, raise the alarm in that respect. That's um, uh, we need to be very cautious in how much we invest when children lack teachers, they lack uh, teaching and learning materials, they lack classrooms that are um, in conditions that are uh, suitable uh, and appropriate for learning before we invest in other uh, other more advanced perhaps approaches to teaching and learning. Um, we of course, as you said, mentioned and have a, an entire chapter on the need for regulation for a range of impacts on well-being, uh, privacy and safety. Uh, the issue of uh, the mobile phones attracted perhaps uh, excessive interest compared to, uh, as you understood from this conversation, the very wide range of topics we covered. It seemed to have touched uh, a raw nerve. Um, it's true, we identified that uh, a large number of teachers are concerned and affected. They believe that the presence of phones in the classroom is distracting. Uh, there is also some academic evidence that is emerging that suggests that the presence of phones uh, has negative impact on learning. Again, one should not be um, uh, applying a blanket approach. Some people argue, well, yes, in poor countries, having a mobile phone and resources accessible could be helpful given that other resources are not available at all. That's also possible. But for countries where people do have access to phones widely, which is the majority, there seems to be a consensus that the presence of the phone in the classroom is, is, a, is a problem. We, in fact, we don't make an explicit uh, recommendation on the ban. Uh, we simply make the recommendation that any investment in technology should improve learning. Now, if there's evidence accumulating that having phones in the classroom does not improve learning, then indirectly that can lead to this uh, conclusion. Uh, but we know that countries differ um, far too much in how 
they conceive bans. There are some countries that are a bit more, let's say, authoritarian. They, they like the concept of having a law that bans and then everyone follows. Um, there are many countries where decisions are taken at the school level and schools ultimately have the, the decision what to do or not to do. So um, I think we're very, very clear about that. But the, the reactions that we have found all over the world has taken us by surprise uh, because it suggested uh, that there were, that was an issue that needed to be um, higher on the agenda. Uh, and we're happy that, uh, that it has led to these discussions. And they prompted a lot of discussion. I've just got one final question, actually, which I was thinking about. And um, there are lots of, I want to make the point that there are lots of really um, uh, positive impacts that you mentioned in the report. It's not all sort of doom and gloom. There are some focuses on the challenges there. And like you say, there's a tendency to do that and ring the alarm bell. Um, my final question is then, what are you hoping for in terms of the impact of this report and the separate country profiles as well that we that we talked about? What would you like to see happening now in terms of policy and, and school discussion? I think uh, our preference would just be to help policymakers um, reflect. Um, the report starts with seven case studies from different parts of the world. Um, some are well-known champions, like I mentioned, Uruguay or Estonia, for instance. Um, but there are also uh, other countries. It's this um, Egypt, uh, Rwanda, Nepal, uh, Samoa, uh, Singapore, examples all over the world that seem to suggest that Technology is seen by policymakers as a signal of uh, an intent to bring progress to education. And what we're trying to say is that not all that shines is gold. Uh, yes, we are embarking on uh, digital transformation uh, in so many ways. Um, the discussions on AI accelerate, even though we retain some skepticism to how much that is applicable to education, despite what uh, is being said, or how much that could change. But policymakers need to pause and ask these four fundamental questions, which we have found that they're absent. There's a, an enthusiasm to apply the latest gadget or the latest technology, but no enthusiasm to invest in the research that will prove that any of these uh, tools are useful and that's what is reflected in the title of the report the report is called technology in education a tool on whose terms we have to see technology as a tool that can be applied well or can be applied poorly um, that discussion is missing and we would like uh, to see it and on whose terms uh, it's um, the terms of the learner uh, technology should be applied in the learners and the teachers best interests. It should not be imposed as a solution of doubtful um, applicability and quality. So um, to the extent that uh, as part of our launch and our campaign, which is called Tech on Our Terms, these discussions can be had, then of course we would be uh, very happy about the impact of the report. Well, there's plenty of food for thought there. It's been a fascinating discussion. It's been great speaking with you today. Uh, Manos Antoninis, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with Teacher. Thank you so much for inviting me.
That's all for this episode. If you want to keep listening, you can access more than 280 teacher podcasts from our archive at teachermagazine.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Before you go, I have a quick favour to ask. Please take a few moments to review our podcast. It helps other people like you to find it and it's a big support to the teacher team. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast from Teacher, supported by MacKillop Seasons, Seasons for Life, supporting schools and young people affected by suicide and other significant losses. Visit mckillopseasons.org.au.